So yesterday we floated the buffalo for Paige's 18th birthday. I think it was us and half the state of Arkansas out on the Buffalo River, but that is a different story for a different time. Now listen, I didn't grow up on rivers, so navigating a canoe on a river is something largely new to me, and I am a bit perplexed of why they give you this thing called an oar. Because the boat's going to go where the boat's going to go. If I've learned anything, it's that uh, oars are great for children splashing one another and creating fights. They're great for swords. They sometimes work to generally point something in the right direction. But that's about it. Because when the current's pulling you a particular way, there's not a whole lot you can do. If the tree's coming, the tree's coming. If the falls are coming, the falls are coming, and so you go. My point is the current is the current. And it is inexorably taking you somewhere when you're on that canoe. It's drawing you. That current is pulling you. And sometimes it's evident, right? Sometimes you feel it, you can even see it, the pull of the boat. And sometimes it's almost imperceptible, right? You, you don't even barely see the current moving or flowing. And yet, nonetheless, you are steadily progressing downstream, Friends, God's providence in our lives is a lot like that current. God's providence, it draws us. God's providence, it pulls us. And we have those moments where that pull of God's providence is unmistakable. And yet sometimes that providence is barely perceptible. And yet it is still there quietly carrying us along. And friends, the current of God's providence is what I want us to be thinking about this morning as we turn to 1 Samuel chapter 25. 1 Samuel chapter 25. Let me invite you to turn there now, 1 Samuel 25. And if you're just joining us, if you're visiting here this morning or if you're, if you're listening in, 1 Samuel really records the story of how Israel moves from a sort of a young nation and it transforms from a sort of sleepy kind of tribal people to a powerful monarchy. And it's sometimes referred to as Israel's portrait gallery because it contains some of the most wonderful characters um, and colorful characters in all the Bible. And we're actually going to be introduced to two more of those characters this morning. And as we've seen, this young shepherd boy, David, right? he's promised to be Israel's king. He's promised to, to assume the throne, and yet... That path to the throne is not an easy one. It's fraught with trial and with suffering. He must learn to bear a cross before he's ever to don that crown. And that's because such sufferings are preparing us for the one to whom David himself finally points. God's true anointed king. right? The trial, Jesus Christ. And yet, those trials are also helping us see as Christians, this is also the way the Christian life, as it was in David's life and the king to whom he pointed Jesus, so it often is in our own lives. There are no shortcuts to glory. Not for David, not for Jesus, and not for us. And so much like Israel's own trials and testing in the wilderness, David, like Jesus to whom he points, David is in his wilderness years. That's where we are here in 1 Samuel. 
and he's on the run from Saul. In last chapter, he had the perfect opportunity there in the cave to take the crown by force, right, to exercise bloodshed. It would have been so quick, so easy, relatively painless to take that crown, and yet he didn't do it. Right? Though Saul was a wicked king, David understood. Nonetheless, he was still at this point God's anointed king. And friends, this brings us to chapter 25. Chapter 25. Let's begin reading. And as we do, I want to sort of work through this chapter in scenes. And I want us to take special note of how God's providence is at work. All right, let's start reading chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. Now Samuel died. And all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Moan whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful. But the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, i.e. in his authority. They came as his ambassadors. And then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is this son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I don't know where? So David's young men turned away And came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. About 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. Friends, we're going to stop right there. Stop right there. So the first thing that I want us to see as we trace sort of God's providence is that God's providence, it tests us. God's providence, firstly, it tests us. So notice how the story opens. Just abruptly, now Samuel died. And friends, that news drops like a bomb, right? It drops like a bomb because Samuel was David's, one of his only allies, Now, we haven't heard a lot about Samuel for the past few chapters, and yet it was Samuel who himself had said and anointed David as one who would one day take the throne. It was Samuel who was revered in all Israel and perhaps the only man that Saul himself feared, and this ally of David's is now dead. David is already being tested. 
when all human allies and friendships leave us, when we are alone, whom will we trust? And whom will we trust in those moments? Well, Samuel's death likely explains in verse 2 why, why David heads south, right? He heads down to Paran, which is the, really in the Sinai Peninsula, the northeast corner. Point is, it's far south, far south of Israel, namely far south of Saul, right? He's perhaps escaping, trying to give more distance between him and Saul. And it's here that we're introduced to two new characters in this portrait gallery. So David is sort of down now in the wilderness, right near where Israel was wandering in its own wilderness years. And we're introduced to these two new characters. The first we're told is what? First thing we read, he's very rich. Before we're given his name, we're informed of his possessions, which is fitting because his possessions will always precede his person. In life and in death, we'll see that is the case with this man. Now his wife, Abigail, is the second, and we're pretty much told Abigail is everything this guy is not. Now it's also the time of year we read when sheep are being sheared, and given how valuable a commodity wool was, this was a time of celebration, it would have been a time of feasting, and the man, Nabal, he had a lot of sheep, there was a lot to feast and to give praise to God over. And it seems that David's men and Nabal, they had some kind of informal business arrangement going on. So roving bandits were common. He's got a large flock, a large herd. It wasn't uncommon that some would help guard and help protect those sheep. And in exchange for that guard and protection and for that care, they would expect some generosity on the part of the one who owned the sheep. Right? Not an uncommon arrangement. Only when the time comes, note what Nabal's response is. Verse 10. Nabal responds, who is this David? Who is this what? This son of Jesse. You see that son of Jesse. He right here is demeaning David. Right? He's mocking him. He's showing contempt and scorn just like Saul referred to David scornfully as the son of Jesse. So Nabal does the same thing. This is just one of a number of ways in which Nabal is going to be pictured as a kind of Saul. He's a kind of Saul throughout the chapter. And in the same way, he mocks David. He says, should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed, my shears, and give it to a bunch of nobodies, right? That's effectively what he's saying. You can imagine Nabal, he sort of huffs and he slams the door in David's servants' faces and he just walks away. That's the sense you get. David here being tested. So he's been promised the throne. He's the one who's helped ensure that Nabal has had this banner business year. It's because David's men have so obviously and clearly protected that flock. Nabal should be honoring him, at least thanking him. David was humble before him. None of the response in return. Will he have his honor at the edge of a sword? That's the question. Will David be the kind of man who takes what he understands to be his by force? He's being tested. That's what's presented to David. My Christian friend, testing in the Christian life, it's inevitable and it's constant. You know, sometimes we may be tempted to think, listen, I've believed in Jesus, right? I've done my part. 
the life now I've wanted, the dreams I have, now that I've done my part for God, God in response is going to have to do his part for me and he ought to be granting me some of the life that I desire. He ought to be fulfilling those dreams that I have. Now we would never say outwardly that it's a kind of quid pro quo relationship, but inwardly that's often what we assume. I've done my part, now God it's your turn in response to do your part for me. But friend, that's not how the Christian life works. It's not how the Christian life works. In God's providence, he regularly will bring tests our way. Tests that are meant to refine us. Tests that are meant to purify us. Tests that accomplish for our character what no blessing of God can ever bring. You know, we think getting what we want will turn us into the person that we want to be, will give us the life that we want to have. But friends, only by receiving what God gives, right, the testing and the trials, does he make us into the person that we need to be. It's only through those trials that we become not just the person we need to be, but the person we ought to want to be and one day will be. That's what comes so often uniquely through seasons like this of trial. Friends, I wonder what tests, right now, what tests may you be facing? Maybe the loss of possessions, the loss of a job, or maybe in Nabal's case, it's the abundance of possessions. It's great blessing that itself can present a great test. Maybe it's the loss of a relationship that tests you, or it's a budding new relationship that offers a kind of test. Maybe it's the death to a long-time dream. Friends, God's providence tests us. Will we trust him, or will we take matters into our own hands? Right, that's the question we face. And it doesn't seem that David has actually taken the test all too well. David's men return, and it seems that with every word that his men utter, they come right back, share what Nabal said. With every word, his face becomes a deeper shade of red. Until finally he's seething with anger, every man strap on his sword, David gets his, and 400 go, leaving 200 to remain back with the supplies. So friends, let's keep reading. What happens? But one of the young men told Abigail, this is verse 14, One of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. That word railed, it's it's almost like he heaped abuse on them. He screamed at them, as some translations say. He railed at them. Yet the men, David's men, were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Well, then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me and behold, I come after you. 
but she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, it's as if she's coming down through a mountain pass. That's kind of the image. Coming down under the cover of mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, and maybe she overhears this, surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belonged to him. And when Abigail saw David, she hurried, got down from the donkey, and fell before David on her face, and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Now we're going to pause because we're going to think about what she utters to David sort of in the next scene. But let's just consider this for a moment. The second thing, God's providence, it doesn't just test us, it often surprises us. God's providence, secondly, it surprises us. For in the midst of this remote mountain pass, who does David bump into but Nabal's own wife, Abigail? I'm pretty confident this woman was probably the last person David expected to see as he, with his 400 men, made their way swiftly to make an end of Nabal's house. And we're told how she came to be there, right? One of Nabal's own servants overhearing how Nabal had, had railed at David's men, really just belittled them, how he had done this. Well, he hears of it, and he approaches Abigail and says, listen, my master won't listen to me. Maybe you can do something. Well, now, ironically, she doesn't even try to talk to him either. That's because everything that is said about Nabal, everything about his character that's said, it just proves true by everyone who tends to speak and act around him. It's just evident. Because Nabal is, verse 17, such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. So Nabal's developed a kind of reputation. He's developed a reputation of a guy you can't reason with him. This is a guy you can't deal with. He's not interested in advice. This is the kind of guy who always has the answers. Immediately, all the answers. And friend, what I want you to see is this is the worst kind of authority. It's the worst kind of authority. One that is both abusive and arrogant. A wicked combination. Abuse and arrogance. And ears that are obviously shut to all counsel. So just find a word to you. If you are in any position of authority, maybe you're a manager at work, maybe you manage an entire business, maybe you're a husband, Maybe you're a mother to, to children and, and have some authority in that relationship. Maybe you're an elder or you're a teacher or you're some officer of some kind given authority by the state. Friend, how do you exercise that authority? How do you exercise that authority? What happens to you when someone confronts you? Do you welcome it? Or do you immediately become defensive and lash out at them? Do you have humble ears to hear? Or do you instead 
have answers for everything before they're even completed. You've already formulated in your mind why what they're saying can't be true and what you will say in response. Friend, if you're above critique, if you see yourself as impervious to criticism, what makes you think you're ever going to be able to hear God's critique of you? His own criticism of you. There is perhaps no more dangerous a combination than arrogance and authority. And Abigail knows this. And she knows she can't reason with her husband. It's why she makes haste, we read in verse 18. And she hurries to David with a few gift baskets, large gift baskets, albeit, in tow. And the picture of Abigail, instead, it's a different picture, isn't it? It's one, a picture of one who's both discerning and decisive. In contrast to Nabal, who's what? Rash and impulsive. And while Nabal tends to sit around and enjoy all of his wealth, it's actually Abigail, the one who we constantly read, is hurrying and rushing and moving about, industrious and getting things done. And her fears are warranted about what's going to happen because we read in verse 21 how, how David is obviously so incensed at this affront that Nabal has, has given him, uh, this, this, the way he's responded, he's so incensed. He says how, again, how Nabal has returned me evil for good, that expression like last week, right, the same expression he uses of Saul, again, parallel Nabal and Saul, again, he's returned evil for good, and yet this David who last week wouldn't lift a finger against God's own anointed, is yet ready to slaughter every male in Nabal's house. Right, David, this has become a personal vendetta for him, which is why he must, at that moment, be so shocked to see, in effect, God's stop sign in a skirt. Because that's exactly what Abigail is. She functions to David is a kind of stop sign, if you will, in a skirt. And I don't mean that offensively, and you'll see why in a moment. All right? Stop sign that way. For there in the mountain pass she is, and she bows with her face to the ground. She takes her husband's blame upon her, and she begs David to listen. Begs him to listen. And he's no doubt shocked by the sight, not just because we've already read she's beautiful. That is the case. But he's so taken back, obviously, that he's got no other alternative than to listen to this woman who has respectfully and rather boldly bowed down and begged and pleaded with him to hear her. It's a wonderful picture, friends, of how often God surprises us in his providence. If we have eyes to see and if we have ears to hear the surprising acts of God's providence in our own life. David did not expect Abigail in that moment, and yet there she was. Friend, I wonder if you can point to surprising acts of God's providence in your own life. Can you point to any of those surprising acts of providence in your life? You know, a great way to use your lunch today is to try to recount some of the surprising ways God has worked in your life and cared for you. You know, I think about my own life. I wasn't raised in a Christian home, and I was raised in two parts of the country largely, the Northeast, New England, and Santa Cruz, California, that were very hostile to Christianity. 
And yet, despite that, in God's sweet and surprising providence, it was in that very hostile and unlikely environment that he saved me. Right? God's surprising providence. I married a woman who wanted to be a pastor's wife when I expressly would never be a pastor. How does that happen? God's surprising, surprising and wonderful providence. You know, I think of what took us to D.C., I think of what brought us here to Arkansas, surprising turns of God's providence everywhere along the road. And friend, I shudder to think where I would be if I had not followed and if I had not led and saw and obeyed some of those clear, some of the clear sort of direction and and will of the Lord in our lives. I think of God's providence to us as a church. You know, after years of budget shortfalls, what do we have? But we have years of overages and how God has wonderfully and providentially cared for us and provided for us. The way he's dropped so many men and women here at UBC who want to be trained well in scripture, who want to be trained to think well about ministry, people who were here before I ever arrived here. God had set that all up and had arranged that. Again, God's providence Friend, everywhere you look, you should be able to see surprising evidences of that providence in your life if you have eyes to see and ears to hear. Friends, while we have our paths, one of the things we come to find is that currents of God's providence, they always seem to take us down other paths, right? Other paths, which in time, we will come to find our better paths. And that's what David is experiencing right here. God's surprising providence in his life through this unlikely encounter with Abigail. Now, David stopped dead in his tracks. There's a beautiful woman bowing at his feet. This day has certainly not gone as he had planned. What's next? Well, this is where we really come to the heart of chapter 25, and it's Abigail's sort of speech, her plea, if you will, to David. Let's pick it back up in verse 25. Abigail says to David, let not my Lord, referring to David, regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. And now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt, And from saving with your own hand? Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord. So she's saying God will make my Lord David a sure house. Because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living and the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience For having shed blood without cause, or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, 
Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel has sent you to me this day. Blessed be your discretion. Blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. And then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and I have granted your petition. Friends, what I want us to see is God's providence. Yeah, it tests us, it surprises us, but most notably here, again at sort of the center of chapter 25, God's providence restrains us. I want you to see how God's providence restrains us. Because in chapter 24, previous chapter, in 26, the chapter that follows, David will be the one who spares Saul's life. But here, David actually needs his own life spared. The one who restrained his men in the cave is the one now who needs to be restrained. And all this hinges upon the appeal of an otherwise unknown woman named Abigail. And she opens there in verse 25 by recognizing that her husband is a foolish man. The man has lived up to his name. Nabal means foolish. In effect, she says, Listen, David, please ignore my husband. He can be a bit of an idiot sometimes. And friends of, of all the wives who are now sitting here, you're all chuckling to yourself because you're like, yeah, I know what that's like. I know what it's like at times. You're like, you got to ignore my husband. Sometimes he can be a bit of an idiot. Well, she experiences that to the nth degree. And she recognizes that her husband is foolish, and she calls it out. She recognizes it for what it is. But notice, most importantly, what she does. What does she do to get David's attention? Does she flaunt her beauty to get her way? Do we read that she put on you know, some tight top that might attract David's attention? She might persuade him in that fashion. You know, God did send David, so to speak, a savior in a skirt. But notice it's not the skirt that moved him. It was Abigail's mind. It was her discernment. It was her wisdom. It was how she spoke to David. She did not appeal to her looks. Rather, she appealed to God's own promises. Abigail reasoned biblically. She reasoned theologically, thoughtfully, rationally, courageously, even very convincingly, obviously, for she stays David's hand. Friend, I just want to take... A moment to know that's the kind of qualities, those are the kind of qualities we want to see and we ought to be highlighting within our own body, right? Prizing what the Bible prizes, women like Abigail or like Hannah back in chapter two or women like Esther in scriptures, theologically thoughtful and very respectful, right? Women who are bold and also very wise, biblically wise women. We don't want to be scared of such women. Rather, instead, we want to be cultivating those kind of women that share those deep convictions. And that's what we want to be raising up in our churches. As parents, those are the kind of women we want to be raising in our own homes. That's what we want to be teaching our young men to prize. Women like this. Women who cherish these same things. Not merely a woman who can turn a head, but a woman who can turn a mind for how she thinks about Scripture and reasons from Scripture. And notice how Abigail reasons. 
She states it as a matter of fact, verse 26. The Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. For that's actually a gutsy thing to say right there in verse 26. For before her are 400 men, like covered in war paint, and they've got swords swinging by their sides. What does she think they're about to go do? Like they're obviously not dressed for church, okay? They're dressed for war, and yet she makes this statement that she does in verse 26, effectively saying, she effectively says, David, listen, you can trust God to fight your battles. Taking matters into your own hands will only leave you with guilt and with regret. That's effectively what she says to David in front of all of his men. She knows this personal vendetta that David's about is going to discredit him and it's going to call into question his own fitness to be king. If he follows through, she's seeing how David in many respects will be no different than Saul and how he treated the priests at Nob. Very little difference. Which is why she turns to remind David of God's own promises. The promise that he will provide David a sure house, verse 28. Now we can run right over those words, a sure house. But friends, if those words sound vaguely familiar, it's because those are the theologically loaded and charged words of the covenant that God later makes with David in chapter Uh, 7 of 2 Samuel. So in 2 Samuel 7, God promises that he is going to make David a house, and there will be a ruler on that throne for eternity. It'll be an eternal throne, God's throne forever. And here is Abigail, actually the first person to use that expression in Scripture, offering a glimpse, a kind of foreshadowing of the kind of Davidic dynasty that is going to be promised to David. How did she come to that knowledge? It's unclear. Clearly, David had some sense of it from Samuel. She has some sense as well. And she effectively says to David, listen, the Lord holds the bundle of the living. You as well, like a bundle of sticks. Relax, she says. You know this to be true. He has you tight. He has you secure. You can rest in God's capable hands, she is saying. You're safe in him, and on the other hand, your enemies, you don't need to worry about them. Safe in God, don't worry about your enemies. God's going to sling them out, and we run right by that. But friends, what an image. She's not dumb. What did she just do? She's appealing to a sling. David's got experience with those, doesn't he? David remembers those days back with Goliath. When God delivered him, when God delivered his people with a sling, David knows that God fights his people's battles. Now he's lost sight of that, and she ever so subtly is reminding him once again that God will fight his people's battles. She could have gone back to chapter 5 with the ark in Ashdod. Remember, we're Dagon there in the temple. Or afterwards, as that ark makes its way through Philistia, annihilating the Philistines, and there's not a single Israelite to lift a finger. God, she says, fights his people's battles. He will make you king, she's saying. You will become prince. You will become king. So don't become one with blood on your hands. That's her argument. And it's a masterful one, and it's a bold one, and yet what will David's response be? Right, that's the question that was sort of begging at the end of it. 
And is he going to say something like, hey, listen, woman, get out of here. Like, your place is elsewhere. Go home. Does he say that? Does he take her hostage? Does David try to use Abigail as leverage against Nabal and his house and whatever soldiers he has? None of those things. In fact, what does David do? David blesses her in front of all for her discretion, for her wisdom. He can see that in that moment she has kept him from blood guilt. Even more, David sees in Abigail the Lord's restraining hand. He sees God's restraining hand of providence. Verse 34, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who, and it's kind of implied through you, Abigail, God has restrained me. Verse 34, David recognizes that that providential interruption was God's restraining hand at work. God sent her, verse 32, from Carmel so that Carmel didn't become another knob. That's what's at play. Friends, how often does the Lord rescue his servants from their own stupidity? How often does he have to do that? How often does he have to rescue you and restrain you from falling headlong into foolishness and into sin? How often do his loving hands graciously put roadblocks in our path that we would not follow the sin that we're already beginning to follow? How often does he actually send others to mercifully frustrate our own sinful purposes? What kindness of God guides such hindrances to our path? What love so often protects us from ourselves. Friends, that's God's restraining hand at work. Do you see that restraining hand of providence in your own life? Do you see it in any way? Can you praise him for it? Can you say, blessed be that restraining providence for that relationship that blew up, for that job that never came to be, for that acceptance letter that never was, for that loan that was rejected, for that hard confrontational word that you loathed in the moment but came to so deeply appreciate in time? Can you testify to the providence of God's restraining hand in your own life? Friend, we thank God all the time for rescuing us from suffering when was the last time you thanked him for restraining you from sinning? And we thank him all the time for how he rescues us from suffering, but when was the last time you thanked him for how he restrained you from sinning? Friend, how he kept you from you. But in his kindness, that's what God does. And that's so much of what Abigail reflects. Now the scene ends with David and his men. And what do they do? Once again, there's no battle, there's no war, there's no bloodshed. They sheath their swords. They don't seek revenge, but instead she's convinced David, who may have to convince his men. It's not, we're not told exactly, but they leave the fate of their enemies in the Lord's capable hands. But the story's not over. We pick up in verse 36. We read that Abigail, evidently turning back, David has said, go home, go in peace. She came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. 
So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. She, she could have told him that night, thought maybe I'll get away with this, but she doesn't. She waits. She tells him in the morning when he's sober. And in the morning, when the wine had got out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. You see that restraining. He's praising him for it right there. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal in his own head. And then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. And when the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to, to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail, there she is once again, hurrying about, rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. And then sort of an explanatory note, Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galam. Friends, God's providence, lastly, yeah, it surprises us. Well, it tests us, surprises us, restrains us. Lastly, when you see, it vindicates us. God's providence, fourthly, it vindicates us. Because meanwhile, right back at the ranch, what's happening? Well, Nabal's throwing quite the soiree while his wife's gone. Apparently, he didn't miss all the hors d'oeuvres that his wife just disappeared with. Apparently, he didn't even miss his wife throwing a party, hosting the feast of what? A feast of a king again. How is Nabal being presented as a kind of Saul, as a king? And the irony is that the one who acts the part of a king, Nabal, is actually the fool. And the one who has just played the part of the fool, David, is the one who's actually the king. Friends, in life, things are rarely as they seem. That's what, helps, that's what Scripture often helps us see. And Abigail returns, and she waits until the wine had got out of him. Probably quite literally, the wine had to get out of him. And she waits. And then she shares that exchange she had with David. She shares it to Nabal, upon which he becomes like stone, perhaps a heart attack. Maybe he had a stroke. We're not told exactly what it is, but either way, with a kind of blunt and stark simplicity, we read that the Lord struck Nabal and he died. So the man full of wine and full of himself is emptied and becomes nothing. A fulfillment of Hannah's prayer back in chapter 2. We said how much of that prayer is going to be played out in First and Second Samuel. We see it again right here. And God is vindicating his servant David. And I think that stark simplicity of verse 38, I think it's intentional. It's as if the Lord is saying to David, listen, all that bluster, right, all the bravado, the 400 men, right, charging up to go take the ball, all of that, David, all of that was entirely unnecessary. Look at the kind of magisterial ease with which I took out Nabal. I think that's part of the simplicity. That's part of the of the, um, the starkness of it, that God, just like that, can deal with David's enemies. 
Friends, God will vindicate his servants. We don't have to take matters into our own hands, but again, we leave them in God's capable hands. And friends, we need that reminder. We need that reminder this morning in the midst of great injustice. Friends, as you've watched the news and you've seen fires raging across our own country, city after city after city, you know, from all that I've read, Ryan Martin was praying about it earlier, but from all that I've read, there's nothing that can justify the treatment that the officers gave to George Floyd. You know, there in Minneapolis earlier in the week, there's nothing that justifies that treatment. And it's understandable why so many are outraged. You can hear the moral indignation in many of the voices. And friends, I don't mean to say that that moral indignation is justified. I don't mean to say a political statement. I'm not saying that, you know, all officers are abusive. I'm not saying that at all. And yet it is clear, seems very clear in this case, that it was entirely unwarranted. And a man died as a result. And it's not the only case of abuse that we have seen and we have witnessed. And so it's understandable by people would lament. It's right as Christians to lament. It's right for us to grieve and to be concerned and to be deeply troubled. And friend, what will bring peace? To all those who lament what's happened, what will bring peace? Another burned business will not bring peace. A conviction for Officer Derek Chauvin Friend, even that won't finally bring peace because a guilty verdict cannot bring a dead person back to life. Friends, only one thing will bring peace. The knowledge that God will vindicate. The knowledge that he will avenge. The knowledge that he will one day make all wrongs right. Any judgment that we could possibly meet out in this life will pale in comparison to that judgment when that one stands before God, the holy God, the eternal God of all the universe. So what do we do as Christians? As we lament, as we mourn, we entrust ourselves to a faithful creator while doing good. 1 Peter 4. God will vindicate. He will avenge. And so chapter 25 ends, and Nabal is dead. And David has taken, we read, not just Abigail, but Ahanom as his wife. And you know, here the writer, the writer passes no judgment on David's polygamy. This habit, though, this habit of David taking wives will become not just dangerous, it will become disastrous for him. There are some tests, it seems, that even David himself cannot pass. And friends, that's why finally, a text like this calls us. It calls us to look to another. It calls us to look to another David, to a better Savior, who, in the midst of every test and every trial, did not fail. Who passed perfectly and wonderfully and beautifully and calls all who see their need who see that if God is going to judge sin, they're hopeless and lost. And yet, in love, this God sent Jesus down to earth to live a perfect life, to die on a cross as a substitute for sinners, so that those who see their need for a Savior can run to this Jesus and know they can be forgiven in him. In repenting of their sin and placing their faith in him, they can know that this God has avenged sin 
in Christ. You know, I said that, I said that, uh, that no guilty verdict can bring back the dead to life. But you know, when you trust in Christ, and when you trust that God has placed that guilty verdict you deserve on him, and then raised him to newness of life, you too can know for certain that the dead in sin, in Christ, can be raised to newness of life. And you can trust in him and know that with great confidence. Friends, I want you to see from chapter 25 that God's providence, that the current of God's providence is ever before us, testing us, surprising us, critically restraining us, and also vindicating us. Friend, do you see that providence in your life? Will you trust the God behind that providence? Let's pray. God, we pray and we give you praise that in your kindness you give us chapters like this, chapter 25, where we get to see practically in the lives of others how you are so obviously at work. So often when we don't have the kind of 2020 vision in our own life, and it seems like our own glasses are fog and clouded and we just don't see clearly what you're doing always, we can look at this and say, ah, we don't always know, but we know that you are about good things for your people. And so we rest in that providence and we pray you would help us trust evermore in you. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.